Hello and welcome to the podcast for the July issue of The Lancet Neurology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Heather Brown from TLN who's going to discuss some of the issue highlights with us. Welcome Heather. Hi Richard. Heather, we're going to discuss two research articles and a review. Let's start with ACEs, uh, which is a research article concerning stroke risk. What's the specific clinical issue here? People with stenosis of the carotid artery are at increased risk of ischemic stroke. Carotid endarterectomy, which is a surgical procedure to remove the plaque from the artery, and can reduce risk of subsequent stroke in the majority of people whose carotid artery stenosis is symptomatic, but it's not yet clear whether such procedures are beneficial in patients who have carotid stenosis but no symptoms. In the study, called the Asymptomatic Carotid Embly Study, or ACEs, Hugh Marcus and colleagues investigated whether they could predict which patients with asymptomatic stenosis would be most likely to have a stroke as a potential way to identify patients who would be most likely to benefit from surgery. Thanks for that, Heather. And interestingly, the technique they use here to do this identification concerns Doppler ultrasound. Can you explain how that works? The authors used a non-invasive technique called transcranial Doppler ultrasound to detect microembolic signals in the middle cerebral artery. The idea being that detection of small emboli that have broken off from the carotid plaque can be an indicator of future stroke risk, even if the stenosis is not symptomatic. Microembolic signals detected by transcranial Doppler have previously been shown to predict risk of stroke in people whose stenosis is symptomatic, but whether they can also predict risk for people with asymptomatic stenosis has been less clear. So Heather, just run through the methodology and key results. ACES was an international prospective observational study involving 467 patients from 26 centres. Participants had to have greater than 70% stenosis of the carotid artery but no symptoms involving regions supplied by the artery. They then had two one-hour transcranial Doppler recordings at baseline and further recordings at 6, 12 and 18 months and were followed up for two years to see whether they had stroke or transient ischemic attack. The participants who had at least one microembolic signal at baseline had a roughly two and a half times greater risk of stroke or transient ischemic attack than those who had no such signals and the results were similar after adjustment for risk factors such as use of antiplatelet therapy and degree of stenosis. Some interesting findings here. So, of course, the key question is, what are the clinical implications from this study? I suppose a, a key issue here is how available, therefore accessible, would this Doppler ultrasound be uh, in a clinical situation? Transcranial Doppler is non-invasive, relatively inexpensive and widely available, although a limiting factor in clinical practice could be that observers would need to be highly trained. The author suggests that this problem could be overcome with an automated assessment system of the type that is already used for detection of microembolic signals in patients with symptomatic carotid stenosis. And Heather, there's a linked reflection and reaction. What are these authors saying about this study? In their comment, Pierre Amarenko and colleagues suggest that the study could have benefited from more information on statin use and brain imaging data. They also point out that we don't yet know whether microemboli are what cause stroke in these patients or whether the patients with microemboli would in fact benefit from endarterectomy. Thanks, Heather. And next, a phase two study, and this is looking at a possible neuroprotection effect in multiple cirrhosis, specifically for MS that's termed secondary and progressive. Do you mind if we start with some definitions? What is meant by neuroprotective in this sense? And what is the specific MS population here, secondary, progressive? Relapsing remitting MS is characterised by episodes of inflammation, demyelination and neurological dysfunction from which the patients largely recover. 
and many of the drugs used in this stage of the disease target the immune system. But in many patients, the disease eventually becomes what is known as secondary progressive MS, which involves the irreversible loss of neurons and disability, and the idea of neuroprotection is to stop this neurodegeneration. And this study looks specifically at the drug lamotrigine concerning uh, multiple sclerosis. What do we know about this drug based on previous experimental evidence? Well, lamotrigine is actually already used to treat epilepsy. It acts by blocking sodium channels, and the hypothesis is that by preventing entry of sodium ions into neurons, it could also prevent neurodegeneration. The drug has been shown to protect neurons in this way and preserve neuronal function in experimental autoimmune encephalitis, a mouse model that is thought to be similar to MS, and this is the first trial to test the approach in people with secondary progressive MS. Thanks, Heather. So just run through the methods and results, if you would. Raj Kapoor and colleagues did a phase 2 double-blind trial in patients with secondary progressive MS. 61 patients were randomly assigned to up to 400 mg of lamotrigine per day and 59 were randomly assigned to placebo. They found no difference in the primary outcome, which was annual rate of change in a measure of cerebral volume over two, the two years of the study. But, surprisingly, further analysis showed that brain volume decreased more rapidly in the lamotrigine group during the first year and that volume increased again once treatment was stopped, and the authors discuss in their paper potential reasons for these results. There was evidence of better performance with lamotrigine in one clinical test, the 25-foot timed walk, but no evidence of benefit for the other clinical secondary endpoints or in number of new or enlarging lesions. That was an interesting result, and one thing I noticed, Heather, was that the drug had a different effect, didn't it, on, on white matter compared with grey matter. How relevant is that, do you think? And, and taking these findings forward, what are the next steps? Uh, presumably in more research, given that this is a phase two study? Yes, the loss of brain volume mostly seemed to involve white matter, suggesting that lamotrigine has a selective effect on white matter rather than grey matter. Although further studies will be needed to understand why this was the case, and to understand better the effects of lamotrigine on brain volume. The authors suggest that it might be worth assessing changes in white matter and grey matter volume separately in future MS trials. They also suggest that sodium channel blocking drugs could be tested in relapsing remitting MS because lamotrigine was better tolerated by people with less severe disability. In the accompanying comment article, Franz Fazekas notes that, like drugs that target the immune response, neuroprotective drugs might need to be used at early stages of MS to be effective. So, although the outcome of the study is on the face of it disappointing, from the point of view of secondary progressive MS, it does provide new details on the response of the brain to sodium channel blockers that are likely to be useful for future investigations. Finally, Heather, let's discuss a review, and this concerns the use of molecular markers for the detection of glioma. Firstly, Heather, tell us about gliomas in general. These are tumours that are not curable. Unfortunately, that has been largely the case. Malignant gliomas are the most common CNS tumours in adults, and they can include glioblastomas, other types of astrocytoma, oligodendrogliomas and oligoastrocytomas. This is a field that has seen a lot of development over the past 20 years, and in their review, Michael Jansen and colleagues explain how these developments have helped to refine histopathological diagnosis, have enabled more accurate classification of gliomas, and have given clinicians and patients better estimates of prognosis and responses to treatment. And can you give some examples of the current uh, molecular markers that are used? They detail them in a table, I think, in the review, don't they? Yeah, there are a few markers already in use. One example is loss of the short arm of chromosome 1 and the long arm of chromosome 19, which is associated with a better response to various types of chemotherapy and to radiotherapy, particularly in anaplastic oligodendrogliomas. Another example is methylation of the promoter of the MGMT gene, 
Methylation of this gene has been associated with greater efficacy of the anti-cancer drug temozolomide, although methylation also seems to be associated with a better general prognosis. The review talks a lot about the genetics, underlying genetics here. So how will large genetic surveys and gene sequencing studies inform our knowledge about biomarkers and therefore treatment in this area? Large genome-wide studies have already been helpful in identifying potential new biomarkers, such as mutations in isocitrate dehydrogenase genes, which seem to be associated with better prognosis in young patients with secondary glioblastoma. As new sequencing technology becomes available and high-throughput analysis becomes more accessible, the rate of progress is likely to increase, and identification of new biomarkers should lead to quicker and more accurate diagnosis of prediction of tumour behaviour with the potential for personalised treatment. Identification of characteristic mutations could also provide new targets for drug development. Very interesting indeed. And finally, Heather, just mention any other highlights from the July issue. We have a randomised control trial called the McCombin study, which tested methylprednisolone as an add-on to interferon beta in relapsing-remitting MS. We have a review on cerebral small vessel disease and a review on the current status of clinical trials and drug development in Alzheimer's disease. And we have a feature on personal genomics, looking at progress since the first draft of the human genome was announced 10 years ago. Fantastic. Well, it's a terrific issue. Heather Brown from TLN, many thanks indeed. And thank you all for listening. Those are some of the highlights from the July issue of The Lancet Neurology. We'll see you next month.